Welcome to Ballistic Radio. Join us as we explore the subtlety and nuance inside the world of personal protection. Listen as industry experts, thought leaders, and pioneers investigate why it depends is the answer of champions. Ballistic Radio, critical thought over empty rhetoric. Ballistic Radio is brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance. Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtechsordinance.com. And now, here's your host, John Johnston. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtechsordinance.com. I'm your host, John Johnston. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at ballisticradio.com and get the latest behind the scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, other things at facebook.com slash ballisticradio. So joining me again for a repeat visit, the newest member of the Citizens Defense Research Team, it's Kirk. Hey, Kirk. Hey, what's up, John? Not too much. I'm I so the part of me that's like transparent really wants to share the details of um, how much we planned and scheduled this episode. And then the other part's like, don't draw attention to it. So, you know, but jazz is all about improvisation, John. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so for those that don't know, uh, who are you and what do you do or you know, I uh, However, you would like to uh, establish your bona fides as someone to talk about shooting, and then we'll not talk about shooting at all. Perfect, John. Uh, so uh, you all probably know me at this point, but uh, my name's Kirk. I'm sales. Uh, I sell to everybody, so that's why I kind of you know keep the shooting stuff. That's work stuff. But uh, on the shooting side of the house, three-time TACON champ, three 125s of Rogers in one week, turbo pins. Uh, all that stuff, Steel Challenge Grandmaster, USPSA Master, Qualified the Way Shooting for Concealment, uh, Master Class in several divisions, IDPA. Um, pretty good at a lot of things. I'm not the best guy at anything, but I think I have a pretty broad experience level in shooting, particularly from concealment. Perfect. Um, and in another lifetime or a current lifetime, you also had an interest in uh, liberal arts, uh, I believe, which is actually kind of what we're going to be sort of talking about today oh yeah the, 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 that, so on that front i have a double i double majored uh for my bachelor's in political science and philosophy uh just you know normal state college nowhere special and then after that i went to graduate school and you know i'll just tell you where i went to graduate school at st john's college in santa fe new mexico and that is one of the great book schools. So, you know, you don't read textbooks there. You read original work. Uh, all your grading is based off class participation in, uh, you know, conversation and uh, oral exams where basically you're interviewed by your professor and he talks to you and sees if you know what you're talking about and you did the readings, et cetera. And then you're writing your ability to speak about a subject at length. So it's not the traditional multiple choice test, you know, read a textbook, someone's opinion on something. It's, original source stuff and lots of deep conversation and so that's where my background on the uh kind of liberal arts side of the house comes from the kind of masters in liberal arts laws there okay so you and i have had this idea for a while that um so while i have an interest in philosophy by no means am i um i wouldn't even say that i'm educated in philosophy it's just more of a kind of a passing interest of mine or maybe lifelong interest at this point. I don't know. I don't know what the correct way to, to say that would be, but um, you and I have been talking about it for a while that we were just going to do a really weird show where you dropped some of your favorite uh, quotes that you are aware of in relation to philosophy. And then we would talk about it and see if anything useful came out of it for shooting. And if it doesn't, this will just be, um the moment where i completely jumped the shark so either way it'll be good either way you know uh, as long as it looks cool while you're doing it right uh yeah yeah i'm definitely not cool i'm i i just need to buy a minivan from you and then i'll be completely just done with life that's <laughs> where i'll be at so anyway um so you sent one over beforehand and i've read it but why don't why don't you read it and then we'll talk about it? 
Yeah, so I'd like to start. There's actually something I mentioned in our, our last conversation, right? I kind of quoted it uh, off the top of my head, but I'm going to start with that. It's a quote from Jacques Barzan, who's a, you know, kind of a forgotten thinker, but he's, uh, in my mind, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. And uh, he's talking about, you know, in front of a group of people from my alma mater, St. John's, he's talking to them about, hey, what is the value of, you know, liberal arts education, right? And I'm just going to quote the very last bit. This enlargement of vision has a useful byproduct. The same habits of persistent scrutiny, of sensitivity to what is not said but implied, of patient meditation after encountering what is strange, all enhance the power of judging life situations and human character. A course of the classics does not guarantee that a person will be happier or more ethical but it does foster a certain detachment that tends to make for serenity and possibly for a greater decency. So to me, that kind of answers the question of like, well, why, what do you get out of it? What, what is, you know, what do you get at the end of the day? Because you'll hear all sorts of promises like, oh, will you study the liberal arts or the classics or whatever, you'll be a better person than this. You know, you hear this in all sorts of things, jujitsu, like, Jiu-Jitsu will make you a good person, only the best last. And, you know, that stuff's just not true, in my opinion. Uh, you know, there's good people and bad people and everything. And uh, so for me, the question of what are you trying to get out of this? What is there there? It's more a matter of perspective and granting yourself perspective. And not just, you know, intellectually, but emotionally, too. Where you can kind of take a step back and not be caught in this endless cycle of uh, reaction. Just constantly reacting to everything. You can look at something and take it in and, you know, meditate on it for a little bit before you let your reactions, you know, occur or take over or really take place at all. Well, it strikes me, too, that so something that I am spending a lot of time um, speaking about with my son, actually, who will be turning 13 uh, in a couple, couple, three weeks, is uh, the power of introspection. And how important it is to be able to introspect in a healthy way without assigning good or bad, but just in an attempt to understand. And with this quote, you know, the, again, I'm it's the first time I've read it, um, but it strikes me that when you're spending a lot of time literally studying how other people think and how they arrive at their viewpoint of the world. And you're able to do that without assigning good or bad to it, but just work your way through the thought process. And, and sort of, you know, as, um, was the quote says, and sort of as, as you were alluding to meditate on it and being able to respond to things versus react to things and being able to, sort of find a detached place to view the world, not only in a life sense has a lot of application, but inside of a shooting sense becomes very important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the idea that you want to be able to take things in and understand it. I'll tell you one of the big things people get wrong in their practice is they think uh, that practice is just about, okay, hey, I go and do this thing and eventually I'll get better. But really, the mindset you're in when you're practicing and the mindset you're in when you're testing also, right, because practice and testing are two very different things, are very important. Because if you're being mindful during practice and mindful during testing, you'll get all sorts of things out of it that I think a lot of people miss out on. Like I was at just a local club match the other day shooting USPSA, and I took a shot. It was like the second shot in double tap on a target about 20 yards away, and I didn't, mm, I didn't like what I saw of the dot. It was more of a streak than a you know, floating dot, and so I didn't know, man, do I stop because I was already moving to the next position. Like, do I stop and take it again? And I had this inner voice that just said, trust yourself, and so I just kept running, right? I, just, I didn't retake the shot. And uh, I ended up doing good in the stage. I went back, looked at the target afterwards, and it was two alpha. I was overestimating the importance of that dot not quite being perfect, 
but I had developed that ability to trust my instincts and develop correct instincts where you can trust them because you don't want to trust them if they're wrong all the time, right? But I've gotten to a point where by being mindful of my practice and more importantly, mindful during, you know, when you're doing the thing under pressure, you'll get a ton out of that that you just don't get if you're, okay, well, let me check the boxes and do what I have to do and I'll be daydreaming while I'm doing it, think about something else and not really getting the full value out of my practice time. Yeah. Well, and I know for me personally that, well, and I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts too. We have to go to break. Um, so maybe you can respond to this and I'll, I'll share kind of what I'm thinking about. But for me personally, at this point, um, you know, once you learn a skill or overlearn a skill to where the mechanics of it are pretty down, um, a lot of what I get out of practice is seeing where my mind goes and then trying to nudge it the direction that it needs to go and trying to figure out how to steer it around the places it doesn't need to go. Um, a lot of, a lot of practice, you know, and, and not all of it. I don't want to be like, I know how to do everything perfectly because I don't. Um, but a lot of practice at this point for me is really just getting my mind into the correct shape to uh maximize performance uh and i want to hear your response to that but we have to go to break right now we're talking with kirk you're listening to ballistic radio welcome back to ballistic radio brought to you by big tech's ordinance where every customer is a friend not just an order visit them online at bigtechsordinance.com this segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat, makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977. A legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories as well as the X9 family of firearms, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match grade accuracy, superior ergonomics, and concealability with modern service pistol capacity as well as reliability at wilsoncombat.com. So we're talking with Kirk. I, I sort of gave a thought. I want to hear your response to it. One thing I will notice is that if anyone thinks, wow, John seems kind of low energy right now, uh, I'm still struggling with the aftermath of uh, this weird like virus that's coming around. And I've discovered that I have to breathe a different way when I'm, when I'm speaking or I devolve into fits of coughing. So that's been awesome. So anyway, um, so, yeah, I, I was saying ahead, um, in the last segment, Kirk, um, a lot of practice is, is really, for me at least, yeah, the mechanics are there and I'm, I'm working through the mechanics, but a lot of it at a certain level just becomes working through your own head, maybe, or thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, because think about what we're, what we're doing, right? Because whether you're looking at it from purely sporting context or if you're looking at it from a personal protection or, you know, let's say a professional context or a cop, soldier, something like that, what you're trying to do is develop the ability to do the thing in real life, right? So in a match that's, hey, at nationals, I'm going to perform like I should perform, right? If you're a cop, it's, hey, you know, someone draws down on me a traffic stop, I'm going to make the right choices, I'm going to do the right things, right? Uh, so that's what we're trying to prepare for. is isn't just, okay, hey, I look good on Instagram, I look good when I'm practicing, right? We want to look good when there's real pressure, whatever that pressure is, whether it's like, you know, the artificial stress of competition or the actual stress of, you know, a life or death encounter. So you want to kind of really do your best you can to develop that ability to know, okay, how do I work under the pressure I can produce, right? And uh, a lesson that's really valuable for me that I learned at Rogers was you can be like, handshakingly, you know, like, like nervous and, you know, like invested in what, what you're about to do, right, before the test or whatever, and still put in, like, top-level performance. Like, for years, I spent a lot of time, like, man, how do I de-amp myself? How do I get more zen? How do I get more, you know, book of five rings about this? And I found out, for me, that's just not the way my brain works. Uh, the way I work is I'm, you know, when I'm shooting, I'm anxious the whole time. And, uh, but that doesn't stop me from doing the thing well. And once I realize that, okay, I can shoot really, really good like this, 
if I approach it from the right direction, that really freed me because I was no longer worried about, okay, I'm going to do these crazy breathing exercises and I'm going to you know, do this or that or the other. I realized I can shoot amped up very well and I just can't let that distract me. And that was a huge jump up in my ability to perform on demand in actual tests in front of people instead of just, you know, at my home range parking around. So <clears throat> I think we've covered that. How many prepared quotes do you have out of curiosity? I mean, how many? I got many? at least five or six good. Uh, yeah, let's let's get to another one. Let's see if we can at least get to at least one per segment. Um, and I know we okay. could explore that that topic further, but I kind of want to just give people a taste. So, all right. So, if you want a discussion, uh, you know, if you're a ShivWorks alumni or someone that studies the uh, material, uh, you're probably very familiar with the idea of timing decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I'm going to read you a quote from a Citrus Erasmus, who was a, a you know humanist philosopher in you know during roughly the Renaissance in Northern Europe. And uh, so these are him and his contemporaries are basically rediscovering old Latin and Greek classics and then translating them to the languages of, you know, contemporary Europe of the time, right? And so he's taking all these old quotes and, like, not only translating them for people to read them, because uh, now, you know, there's a class of people who can read who don't necessarily know Latin or Greek, right, which is new for that time period. And also, he's giving his commentary in the book he writes. is called De Adagio, The Adages, right? So this is a quote on a Latin phrase called Nosce Tempus, which translates directly to mind the due time. And so I'm going to read to you a quote at length, but I think it's very well worth discussing. Her image was represented in the old days as follows. She had wings on her feet and stood on a freely turning wheel, and she spun very rapidly round and round. The forepart of her head was thickly set with hair the back of it bald, so that her forehead could easily be grasped and the back of it not at all, hence the phrase to seize the opportunity. Thus, both a learned illusion and an elegant image were produced by the unknown author of the line, long in the forelock, time is bald behind. Besides which, it is a pleasure to add the epigram by Posidipus on the subject, which was unaccountably omitted by Palziano, and runs as follows. Where did the sculptor come from? Sicyon, and his name, Lysippus. And who are you, the subject? Due time, master of all things. Why go on tiptoe? I am always running. Why have a pair of winged sandals on your feet? I fly with the wind. Why carry a razor in your right hand? To show I am keener than the razor's edge. And your hair, why so long over your face? That he who is beforehand with may seize it. The back part, why so bald? Because once I have run past a man on my winged feet, never for all his longing shall he seize me from behind. Such stranger did the artist make me and set me in the forecourt to be a warning to your fellow men. So there's a lot going on there, right? Yeah. And part of the, yeah. So timing decisions, but you know, these are things that are important in you know, the tactical sense, right? But also in the life sense and, you know, how you live your life, how you think about your life. Earlier in this quote, because I had to chop it down, so I don't want to just read it, you guys, you know, for long periods of time. Yeah. But uh, he talks about timing can make good actions bad, bad actions good. They can turn fortune this way or that way. I mean, timing is important. And when you look at the idea of, you know, like wisdom, what is wisdom versus intelligence or learning or education or whatever, right? To me, wisdom boils down to knowing what to do at the right time, you know? And uh, so there's a couple of parts in here that I think are interesting. Uh, you know, they talk about uh, the, the goddess or God, depending on which tradition you're looking at, Roman or Greek, uh, is known as Kairos and uh, the God of due time. And so he's got this razor blade to show you that, hey, watch out. And, uh, you know, they're talking about how the image of this, of Kairos, is used as a warning to your fellow men, right? So it's all about preparation and timing. There's a lot you can do to prepare beforehand. You know, the old phrase, you know, uh, you know an ounce of uh, prevention is worth a gallon of cure, right? And uh, you want to prepare not only for, you know, whatever your situation is. If you're a cop, hey, I want to be ready if, you know, someone tries to hurt me or your private citizen, hey, I want to be ready if someone, you know, tries to hurt me and my family. You know, if you're an athlete, hey, I want to be able to, when I go to nationals, I feel ready. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to give it my 100%. 
all those things are born on preparation. You need that preparation, but you also need to be able to make that timing decision. You need to be able to say, okay, you need to recognize now's the time to do something. And that's mm-hmm. really a big part of what your training should be about. Um, you know, John Correa recently did a, re- a really interesting set of like, hey, there is a shot timer in the gunfight. And if you look at videos, you can like figure out exactly what it is. Like yeah. if a guy is fully turned, you have a second and a half. If he's back facing you, you got two seconds, whatever. Right. Uh, and he's exactly right. It's about, you know, and this is what force and force training gives you is you learn to recognize your opportunities, but you have to act on them right away. You can't, uh, the word that Tom Gibbons used I was was dither. You can't dither. You can't overthink it. You have to be trained to the point where you know, hey, now's the time to do this thing. And I think that quote gets into that in a variety of ways. Well, and there's so many different directions that we could take this as far as if, you know, life or if we keep it inside of the tactical thing. There was a, a, a video that was recently posted on the carry trainer Instagram account. Uh, Mickey's a good dude. He, he runs a really good Instagram account. And I saw it. And it's um, it's a sad video in that someone dies. Uh, and it's an interesting video in that it is the, and it, you know, this is going to sound just really callous, but it's the most effective stabbing I've ever seen as far as effect on target. Now it sucks that the person stabbed didn't deserve it. And the person that does the stabbing, um, you know, murders someone on camera, but you know, one of the one of the things that was interesting to me about it was breaking down the timing elements and breaking down. Um, okay, here's the first indication of maybe trouble. Here's the first indication of actual trouble. Here's the amount of time where there's still something that can be done, and then after the stabbing occurs, that dude's not surviving. It doesn't matter where he gets stabbed. Um, as far as location on the planet could happen in a level one trauma center's emergency room. He's not going to live through it. Um, it's an effective stabbing, but to the point that, you know, the quote is making as far as, you know, there's a point of no return in that sometimes you're just out of time and being able to recognize sort of like what you're talking about. Um, yeah, okay. People have all of this knowledge of like, here's some potential things that I can do, but having the wisdom to go now and just decisively go now, um, is incredible. The old phrase Paul Gomez, Paul Gomez abuses. The the problem is when you're training, you know, like regular people is regular people We're we grow up in an environment, we go to, you know, state sponsored schools, we go to schools and, you know, we get taught their rules and, you know, this is what good people do. They behave this way. There's certain expectations society has in you, et cetera, right? And then, you know, kind of like William April talked about, people have all these not helpful ideas when bad things are happening. Like, okay, well, why me? Or why is this person doing it? You know, those things don't really matter, right? And one of the things Paul Gomez talks about is like with normal good people, one of the problems is that it's hard for normal people to get aggressive enough early enough. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you do have those those opportunities at the beginning where before anyone, any innocent people get harmed, you can maybe stop this. Right. But it's hard to get normal people to do that a lot of the times because this isn't what you do for a living. This isn't, you know, we're not familiar with violence in the way that people, you know, in law enforcement and other careers are. And so that's something you really want to invest a lot of time on force and force to really, you know, learn how to make good decisions under meaningful stress. And, uh, you know, like the quote talks about, like, never for all your longing, you know, can you catch it? Can, can you catch opportunity from behind? Right. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, once it's gone, it's gone. And that's just all that's left to you is regret. Right. So you want to prepare yourself where you can have wisdom to make good choices. We don't want to overreact. We certainly don't want to hurt anyone that doesn't deserve it. But we also need to be able to recognize opportunities to meaningfully influence the situation. Right. We don't want mutually assured destruction where me and the bad guy both get shot and die. Right. Yeah. That's not really a win. We want to get in a situation where, hey, if I can avoid the scenario, best case, I won. You win every fight you don't get in. Uh, 
lots of smart people have said that. Yeah. And uh, okay, well, now I have this opportunity to, you know, like harm the bad guy with lower risk to myself. Hey, that's that's cool too. That's a better choice than all right, let's slug it out in the middle of the parking lot with some dude, right? Yeah. Or um getting killed standing flat footed, you know. And yeah. it's it's interesting too, because when you start looking at stuff like this, um, you know, so if I take a regular person, I say, hey, um, then they the next eight seconds are going to determine whether you live or die. You you have eight seconds to do something, anything. Uh, okay, go. Most normal people are going to go, oh my God, that is so little time. Whereas, I mean, and I don't know if I am overestimating uh, my own ability, but I suspect too that you would feel similarly about this if, or any number of people we're friends with, if I say, hey, you got eight seconds to do something, eight seconds seems like forever to me personally, you know? Like that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know if that's just a byproduct of training or if that's a byproduct of already having predetermined courses of action in certain situations, but um, it sort of goes back to the first quote in so much that the more that you're exposed to and can examine it sort of dispassionately and remove some of your immediate reactions from it and just meditate on a little bit, you get a much greater, like if, if you, if I don't have any of this information or experience at all, and you say eight seconds go, um, that's going to be terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. Like a crippling amount of anxiety. Um, but you know, and again, I don't want it to happen. I don't want to sit here like, Oh, I'll be fine. Like, I'm not saying that, but I feel pretty okay if you tell me, hey, you're going to go get into a violent encounter, you know, two hours from now, but you get eight seconds free at the beginning of it. Like, okay, I got a lot of control over that situation in that set of circumstances, you know? Well, like uh, a good way to frame it is like one of my favorite book titles in the tactical training world is one of Masada Yu's old books is titled In the Gravest Extreme. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like an important thing to remember is all the stuff we're talking about is is in the gravest extreme, right? This is, we are well outside of normal behavior in society. We're well outside of normal people's comfort zones. We're well outside of, you know, even most professionals comfort zones, right? I mean, you do have your, you know, your meat eaters, right? And any professional, you know, thing like police, military, et cetera. But even then there's a lot of people that this is not something that's comfortable for them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you need to always keep that grounding. And that to me is like, I love the shooting sports. The one thing about the shooting sports is they're very serious about performance. But at the end of the day, what they're doing is trying to be the top guy, trying to be the most impressive guy, trying to be the guy that wins, right? There's that drive for excellence that's pushing it. Whereas on the, the defensive side, we need to keep that grounding of what we're talking about is going well outside the bounds of normal social behavior and engaging in the gravest extreme to preserve innocent life. You know, that's, that's what this is for at the end of the day. And keeping that balance is, I think, important. You don't want to get so wrapped up in the defensive side that you hold yourself to a really low standard. You also don't want to get so into the gamer side of, okay, you know, like that you lose sight of what this is about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I agree completely. Uh, we got to go to break again. Uh, so you can you can cue up the next quote that we'll talk about and maybe we'll tie it back to all this. Maybe we won't. Uh, right now we're talking with Kirk. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdnance.com. This segment also brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance. Big Tech's Ordnance is the best place for you to find all of your everyday carry needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the Candela from Monlight at the lowest price? No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room and now you need an optic on your carry gun? Well, Big Tech's Ordnance has those and they don't judge. Glock accessories, yes, fast, cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, Big Tech's Ordnance has Ike, 
He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike. And you'll like Ike, too. Visit BigTexOrdinance.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So we're talking with Kirk about <laughs> all sorts of weird stuff. And this is either going to be a really popular episode or like, wow, did they smoke something before they came on the show? What, what the hell? I don't know. I don't really care. Um, care a little bit. I hope people get something out of it, but it's kind of the nice thing. I've been doing this long enough. I can do the shows I want. So hit me with your next one, Kirk. I think while we're on talking about, you know, in the graves extreme, that is, you know, this is life and death stuff and we have to, you know, ground it and keep it important. Um, you know, just for anyone listening, most of my examples are going to be from the Western tradition. Well, one, that's what I'm educated in, right? I don't think I'm qualified to speak on much stuff outside of that tradition. But one area that I do just love talking about because I'm an enthusiast more than anything is uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. I love the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's really interesting because it's one of the oldest written stories we have. Uh, you know, when you look at like ancient language, you know, there's like proto languages and stuff. When you get into actual written language, you basically have some Egyptian funerary texts. You have uh, Sumerian, essentially like Yelp reviews of guys complaining about, you know, this copper I bought was inferior and this guy don't buy from him kind of stuff, which is, I think, hilarious. And then you have uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh from, you know, that same kind of, you know, part of the world from, you know, the Syrian Empire and, you know, uh, Sumer and Ur, that kind of tradition. One of the things that's neat about Gilgamesh is this is one of the oldest written works there is and forms the cultures that would, you know, become, you know, the in the Near East, you know, the the, uh, the Hebrew tradition and other traditions, the Persian tradition would be informed by the tales of Gilgamesh. And uh, it's just one of the oldest stories we have, but it was lost for almost two, three thousand years. So for two, three thousand years, no one got to read it. It was rediscovered in the late 19th early 20th century. And so it's this weird story. It's very, very old, but has a lot of things in contact with the tradition we're familiar with, basically through Western culture, through the, the Bible, et cetera, right? And uh, so long story short, Gilgamesh is a cool guy. The gods have to humble him. They give him a best friend named Kindu. Uh, they go on adventures, and Kindu gets uh, killed. And it just messes Gilgamesh up, because he's the hero. He's the, he's the great man. He's the guy that fights all the monsters and defeats all, you know, the challenges the gods throw at him. Then his buddy dies, and he doesn't know how to handle that, right? And so he's wandering. He's trying to find a character called uh, Utnapishtim, who is the last survivor of the flood that destroyed the world, uh, you know, uh, think Noah, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, he's trying to find this guy to find out if there's a way to either get immortal, uh, immortal life or to, uh, you know, get his friend back. We can do. So he's wandering around along, and he comes across this... Uh, kind of half-goddess, demigoddess called Siduri, the winemaker. And he looks like garbage. I mean, his eyes are all sunken in. You know, this is the greatest guy in the world, right? He just looks like trash. And so he's wandering up to her gate, and he wanders up, and she, like, bolts the gate, like, oh, who's this guy? He looks shady. And so he's saying, hey, I'm Gilgamesh. I'm the guy who did all these things. And she's like, well, why do you look like trash, right? And uh, he tells her, well, I mean, my best friend just died. I'm going through a lot right now. You know what I mean? So I'm going to skip all that. But he's basically saying, uh, he ends his conversation with her with uh, young woman, maker of wine, since I have seen your face, do not let me see the face of death, which I dread so much. She answered, Gilgamesh, where are you hurrying to? You will never find the life for which you are looking. When the gods created man, they allotted to him death, the life they retained in their own keeping. As for you, Gilgamesh, fill your belly with good things, day and night, night and day, dance and be merry. Feast and rejoice. Let your clothes be fresh, bathe yourself in water, cherish the little child that holds your hand, and make your wife happy in your embrace. For this, too, is a lot of man. But Gilgamesh said to Siduri, the young woman, how can I be silent, how can I rest, when in Kindu whom I love is dust, and I too shall die, and be laid in the earth forever? So you have this, like, this, this tension, right, between the knowledge of the inevitability of death, uh, which is true for all of us, uh, you know, for, you know, even a, you know, a godlike demigod character like Gilgamesh. And uh, this idea of, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for soon we'll be dead, right? This, this gets through to the Western tradition. You know, uh, some people would argue that the story of Gilgamesh's portion of the story of Gilgamesh influences part of what would become the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. 
And uh, this idea of, amen, life's temporary, be a good person, enjoy the good things of life. And this is an idea that resonates with me a lot is the bad things in life are inevitable. I mean, disease and death and loss are here coming for all of us, no matter what we do. But the good things in life are optional, and they're dependent on our behavior and our orientation. And uh, you need to set yourself up to enjoy those good things because the bad things are coming no matter what you do, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and it strikes me too, and this is, again, <clears throat> I don't know. This might be related to shooting. I guess we'll see. Um the reason why the good i mean it's my very strongly held belief that the reason why there is beauty in the world is because it all ends and if it didn't all end then it wouldn't be special and it wouldn't be beautiful um you know whether or not that is the case i don't know but it is a thought that has allowed me to find meaning and comfort, not necessarily in the bad things that happen, like, oh, there was a reason this happened, but this serves a purpose. Uh, And the purpose for me is a reminder to appreciate the things that are, you know, the bunny ears, good things. I think that... I mean, if we were going to segue this back to shooting or, you know, the sort of overarching theme of how does philosophy help us become better practitioners of self-defense or, you know, gun games or something like that, I would point out that setbacks are inevitable and actually an amazing part of the process. And the experience of the setback is what allows you to have a frame of reference when you succeed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's people are like, oh, Eric, you win all the stuff, you do all the stuff. I'm like, man, I can tell you all the times I lost, too. I can make mm-hmm. me sound like the worst leader in the world by rattling off all the things I screwed up at, messed up at, failed at. But if it weren't for those things, I wouldn't be where I am either. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. You know, uh, Nietzsche talks about this, the eternal recurrence, but that's a whole nother, you know, like bag of worms. But the idea is that, you know, you are who you are and where you are because of the totality of your experience, not just the good things, but the bad things too. And, you know, if you're out there trying and putting yourself out there, you're going to lose a lot. And because the other guys out there doing it are really good too. And this is a competitive thing, you know, you versus other people, you know, your work ethic, your genetics, your gifts, your planning, right? It's all those other things are all pieces of it. How much of yourself are you willing to give up to, uh, you know, get good, right? Because um, that's a surrendering. That's You have to – I've missed out on things in my life that I could have done because I was out at a range shooting, getting better, right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't come without a cost. And a lot of people think, oh, yeah, you're just so good. I'm like, well, I've missed birthdays and not gone to events and been uncomfortable. You know, like when I was doing my Steel Challenge GM earlier this year, uh, I went to several matches where I drove six hours each way just to go shoot a two-hour match to give myself the opportunity to try to spike one second better on uh, an event, right? Like, most people won't do that. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's and, a sacrifice involved. Well, and there's a sacrifice for anything that is meaningful to you. Um, and, you know, love of anything oftentimes comes with some level of sacrifice, uh, some level of pain, you know, and I think that, you know, when, when people, especially inside of the the shooting community talk about getting good or getting better, um, and I, I don't see me ever doing that. Well, I don't know. What are you willing, what are you willing to do? Um, and again, you know, to be very clear, I don't want people to listen to this and be like, well, the only way that you're going to be prepared to, you know, defend yourself is if you dedicate the entirety of your life to, uh, the pursuit of protecting it. Like, we don't want to do that, you know, as, as, no. as our colleague Melody, uh, once famously said, um, you know, 
don't let your preparation um, to defend your life lead to you not living a life worth defending or I'm paraphrasing horribly, but you know, the concept is, is there. um, But it goes, it goes back to Gilgamesh, but Dory is talking to, uh, to Gilgamesh about, Hey, hey, you know, hold your child's hand, you know, live a life where, you know, you're going to raise, they're writing this like 4,000 years ago, you know, like long four or 5,000 years ago, a long time ago. Right. And uh, they're talking about, you know, your wife wants to be in your embrace. You know, you want to have a life where the people around you love you and care about you and respect you, right? And uh, that doesn't involve spending all day. It doesn't say like, oh, Gilgamesh, like go practice with your sword all day just in case stuff ever goes down, right? Like it's not, we're fortunate to live in a society, one of the only ones that, you know, values the idea of self-defense and the idea that, you know what, sometimes there is such a thing as, you know, pro-social violence where in the graves extreme, you have to determine between bad guys being able to do criminals, felons, however you want to frame it, being able to do whatever they want with whoever they want versus those people, the normal people, having a right to resist that, right? Mm-hmm. So you live in a society that respects that more than most, in a time period that respects that more than most. And you also live in a time period where there's concealed carry firearms and modern technology that make it much more effective than trying to defend yourself with a club, you know, 4,000 years ago, right? And um, the point is, the training is to protect the things you love. And then don't get me wrong, like I'm kind of one of these people that put way too much time and effort into this stuff. But it's not, you know, the self-defense, I try to keep myself grounded in that part of it, because that's what it's about at the end of the day, right, for me. But at the same time, I'm working on stuff way higher in Maslow's, you know, hierarchy of needs. I'm doing this because it's a way for me to see, well, hey, how good can I get at something? You know, like, like how excellent can I be at a thing? It's that at this point. It's not just for purely self-defense side. On the self-defense side, I mean, look at Claude Werner's work. You know, there's lots of normal people uh, with very little training doing lots of good work uh, as far as self-defense and other stuff. For me, for the normal person, that's kind of what we talked about last time. It's learning about negative outcomes, avoiding those, making sure that your, your gun doesn't hurt someone it shouldn't and uh, make sure that it's a positive in your life. And once you get past there, like the technical shooting requirements of most self-defense shootings are pretty low. And you see that in, you know, Tom Given's study of his range master uh, students that have been in shootings. It's not a lot of grandmaster level shooting going on out there. You know what I mean? It's mostly pretty close, pretty quick, and you have to be able to draw and be accurate. But beyond that, your transitions and splits and your movement, getting in out of position, that stuff just doesn't seem to really matter much in the real world. So, you know, if you want to go do crazy stuff, like, you know, try to win Tacon and Rogers and all that stuff, hey, that's cool. It's fun. I recommend it. I've done it. I've gotten a lot of value out of it in my life. You don't need to do all that to be prepared to be a responsible citizen uh, with firearm, taking this stuff seriously and doing it the right way. Yeah. Well, and we got to go to break. Um, the thing that I'll say is the value in all of the extra stuff, like, cause like you said, the technical, uh, shooting that you actually need to do in 99% of the incidents that I have ever seen or been aware of or whatever, it's pretty small. Um, the value in actually going and doing that extra stuff is just knowing you can do it. Uh, like knowing at a fundamental level. Yeah, I, I got this. And, and that's, you know, I mean, most, uh, most of what we're doing at a certain level is just advanced confidence building. Um, you know, and I don't, Absolutely. I don't yeah, I don't know if people want to hear that or not, but that's my opinion on it. Um, we'll do one more quote when we get back right now, we're talking with Kirk and you're listening to ballistic radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tex Ordnance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtexordnance.com. So we're having this weird meandering conversation with Kirk, and it's one of my favorite things ever, and it actually mirrors very closely the stuff you and I talk about just uh, for funsies. So that's kind of cool. Um, oh, yeah. I assume you've got one more for us. Just one more. Oh, I don't know man, I can bore you all day with this stuff here. I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not bored at all. 
Um, so we'll do, uh, I want to end with a guy, a little bit controversial, but you know, whatever. I, he's not right about everything. He's wrong about a lot of stuff, obviously, but like, uh, where he's right, man, he's really right. And, uh, this is from our dear friend, uh, Mr. Friedrich Nietzsche it's from his book, Eke Homo, Eke Homo, uh, you know, this is the man, biblical reference, right? What, uh, you know, Pontius Pilate quote. And, uh, it's a book about his writing process and his life. It's kind of like an author's statement, kind of capping off his career. And uh, it's one of the last things to write. And so he's talking about, you know, like, well, how did he get where he is, where he can write and talk about these things? And he talks about three different subjects, you know, uh, what do you eat? Where do you live? And what do you do for recreation are all very important for who you are and what kind of life you're going to have and who you're going to be. And he talks about how all these things have influenced his life. And we're going to kind of jump on from there. In all these matters, the choice of nutrition, of place and climate, of recreation, an instinct of self-preservation issued its commandment, and it gains its most unambiguous expression as an instinct of self-defense. Not to see many things, not to hear many things, not to permit many things to come close. First imperative of prudence, first proof that one is no mere accident, but a necessity. The usual word for this instinct of self-defense is taste. It commands us to say no when yes would be selfless, but also to say no as rarely as possible, to detach oneself, to separate oneself from anything that would make it necessary to keep saying no. The reason in this is that when defensive expenditures, be they ever so small, become the rule and the habit, they entail an extraordinary, entirely superfluous impoverishment. Our great expenses are composed of the most frequent small ones. Warding off, not letting things come close, involves an expenditure. Let nobody deceive himself about this. Energy wasted on negative ends. Merely through the constant need to ward off, one can become weak enough to be unable to defend oneself any longer. So this is about being very selective, you know, about what ideas you let in and what ideas you, you know, we have this idea that, Go out and do the research, learn a hundred things, learn a thousand things. And, you know, I'm a guy, I've done a lot of training in a lot of places. And at a certain point, you kind of figure out, man, if I listen to everybody, I can't do anything consistently. Uh, You get to where, okay, I trained with this guy. He says, reload like this. I trained with that guy. He said, reload like that. I trained this guy. He says, do this with your eyes. I trained with that guy. He says, do that with your eyes. Man, you can't listen to everybody. And you kind of have to pick how am I going to do things? And I suggest that you do that by experiencing a variety of things, giving them all a fair shake, try them, you know, don't go to shooting class to show the instructor how you shoot. He doesn't care. Right. Uh, You go to shooting class to hear how this guy shoots and then try it yourself, give it a fair shake. And then when you're back home, you kind of test it and evaluate it. And eventually you're going to get to an experience level where you know, yeah, that'll work for me. Let me take that. Or you go, mm, that works for him, but I'm not sure my eyes work like his eyes work. I mean, I've tried it and it just doesn't fit for me. Right. And so this idea that you want to be in a place where you're not just an accident. You're not just grabbing on to whatever idea is presented to you. You know, that, that thing Barzan was talking about, about being able to meditate on something. Uh, you don't want to just be reacting constantly. Oh, I saw this thing on Instagram or, oh, I read this article or, oh, like, like in the end of the day, it's like you have your practice, like, like a doctor practicing medicine. This is your practice of personal protection. These are the things you keep. And as Americans, we have this like keeping up the Joneses thing on one hand where, oh, there's this new thing. I have to respond to that. Right. But also, uh, you know, like we like buying things. We we're a very commercialist society. We think, oh, well, if I buy that, this fixes that. And that's usually not the case. It's more about establishing yourself being a necessity rather than an accident saying, hey, this is what I think is important. I've really meditated on it. It's not arbitrary. And these are things I think are matter, and this is what I'm going to work on. And I think that's extremely important versus just grasping on to every single thing that comes your way. Because now in the current media situation, you're constantly, your mind's being invaded by, you know, various corporations and influencers or whoever trying to, you know, goad you in one direction or another. Well, it strikes me, too, that, um, one, I'll ask, I, I won't say because but one of the things that i took away from that as well is being open to new ideas uh inside of that so it's it's a statement about you know 
having to essentially defend yourself and the amount of energy that requires. And, you know, he's not talking from, uh, you know, in the way that we're talking about the context we're talking about necessarily, but also too, if you are so closed off that you spend all of your energy protecting yourself against every little thing, it's harder to protect yourself from the things that you need to protect yourself from when they present themselves? Yeah, I mean, this, this gets into a lot of, I think, the really good discussions and work that Evans has done is, you know, like, <clears throat> we always kind of wrap our brains around, like, the, the, the stranger attack, right? That's kind of what the training community is built up on. But, in fact, when you look at the numbers, I mean, that, that's, you know, it happens. It's definitely something to prepare for. But a lot of times, it's, you know, people you know, and not necessarily someone, you know, your best friend or something, but it's, people in your social circle that commit crimes. Right. Yeah. And so let's say you're in a bad living situation. You're in a, you know, an abusive home or a bad family situation or whatever, man, the living that way and living like, I know it's easy to say, get out, right. It's not that easy. There's a lot of complications to it, but living in a situation like that, you can't really live your best life like that. You're, if you're in this constant state of anxiety and worry and, you know, like, man, I don't know what's going to happen. You can't, live life as good as you could right and i think that's something that's very important to consider is if you know how are you living your life you go oh i don't go to stupid places stupid people stupid things like i just stay in my bunker and have my you know my uh, belt fed machine gun aimed at the door just in case like well that, that's no way to live that's not that's not positive that doesn't help anyone and that's not the goal of all this stuff the goal of this stuff is hey i want to be responsible and do what can be done but also accept the fact that, hey, there are situations I can't control and I can't, you know, uh, influence even, and that's okay. But on those situations I can influence, uh, I'm going to give myself the ability to, right? And it's about living your life, not avoiding it by, okay, my life is so secure, right? There's nothing that can happen to me. I never go anywhere. I never do anything like, okay, but man, is that a life worth really protecting you know what i mean at that point you're kind of turning yourself into house plants one and that goes back it goes back to the the quote in regards to time and seizing opportunity and you know and again i'm I'm not saying i have any answers i know what i have sort of arrived to and whether or not you know sometimes it's led me to ruin other times it's presented me with amazing opportunities you know a really good example would be um you know, the, the show that you happen to be on right now. Um, you know, I didn't originally own the show. And when I, bought, I mean, I originally hosted the show, but I didn't originally own it. And when I bought the show, um, that was the worst possible decision on paper that anyone could make, um, given the totality of my life, finances, what I had available to me and stuff like that. It was a risk. It was a massive risk that had very little, um, you know, I had no expectation that that would turn out as well as it did. Um, but you know, it did. And I took the risk and, um, I was fully prepared for it to be a horrible decision and it just happened to work out. And at the time, I don't know that I could honestly, honestly answer exactly what I was thinking at the time, but I do know that um, there's certain times to play it safe. There's other times not to play it safe. And there's, you know, there's times where you have to do scary things and there's times where you have to accept that you might fail and, you know, all of that sort of combines into a life. And, you know, I've met people that, um, are so amazingly averse to, anything negative that even when they start examining this sort of thing and they're like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. They, uh, you know, are so scared of failure. Like you have said, you know, in this episode and also the previous one, like they, they won't put themselves out there because, well, I might fail. Um, and you know, there's this weird thoughtfulness that needs to occur where like, Hey, this, this might suck. Um, but I see value in the potential for what comes afterwards. 
Um, and you can well, apply that to anything, you know? Oh yeah. I, that, that makes me think of two things. One is, you know, what, what's the uh, value of the Kobayashi Maru, right? Exercise and Star Trek, you know, like, Hey man, you do everything right and still lose. But there needs to be something people get out of their training is there's no guarantee. I mean, being well-trained, you know, having a firearm that does not guarantee you'll be safe. It doesn't project a force field around you that prevents harm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is uh, aerosol. I'm a big aerosol guy. His system of ethics is what's, what's now known as virtue ethics. And the basic idea behind virtue ethics is that the same, what, what's good advice or good life advice for a soldier may be different from an accountant, may be different from a farmer, may be different from a homemaker. Right. And we all have to accept our own, you know, the same answer doesn't fit everybody. And I'm really attracted to that because in my life, I've found that to be very true. If you're someone that's very risk adverse, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you, but try to be the best version of that you can be, right? Like make educated decisions on when to take a little bit of risk, when to do something a little more interesting, when to get out there. If you're someone very, very, you know, like you love taking risks, you love doing crazy stuff, do the opposite. Like, okay, I kind of know, like, man, maybe this is a little too, little too risky, a little too sketchy, a little too whatever. Maybe I need to back off from that. It's not going to be the same formula for everyone because we're all different people with different values and different responsibilities at different times in our life, right? Mm -hmm. But that's what that idea of mindfulness comes to is like examining your situation and having, uh, you know, like a self, a true self, making yourself, you know, crafting yourself to where you can observe and think about things versus just being kind of this endless cycle of reaction, right? Because that's, yeah. really that's what animals do is they just kind of react to what's in front of them and that's it. Well, you have a mind, you have consciousness, you can be more than that. You can do more than that. But it takes work. You have to kind of work on yourself and work on, well, hey, what do I value? What is important to me? And what kind of life do I want to have in the bounds of what's probably possible, right? Um, that's all really important stuff if you want to get the good out of life, too, because the bad stuff's coming no matter what, right? And the, you know, there's earthquakes and hurricanes and disease. and Inevitably, everyone you love will pass away, including yourself. Yeah. And uh, that's happening no matter what. So you got to decide where you do with the time you have. Well, and a, a constant reminder, and it's worked its way into some of my friendships too, but um, something that I oftentimes say to myself, and I'll say it to other people as well, is, you know, everything ends. And um, I think that, you know, honestly, that at first glance, that seems like a very negative thought, uh, which is funny because I find it amazingly comforting. And, um, as a very useful reminder of, you know, what's important, uh, to me at least. And I think the thing that you're talking about, as far as working inside of the, um, you know, your own bounds and stuff like that is balance in all things, you know, um, you know, being able to balance out your tendencies one way or another is, you know, a useful thing that will enrich your life, uh, in all likelihood. But um, if you want to respond to that, and then we're actually at the end of the show. So after you respond to that, tell people uh, where they can get more of your stuff at, and then we'll, we'll go from there. And, you know, I think it's a thing where, like, I'm not, I'm, I very rarely give advice. Like, you know, I only really give advice when asked, because I think it's presumptuous, right? Like, hey, you guys should be doing this. You should be like, you know, like, whatever. I don't know anyone but me, right? And even then, you barely know yourself, even with a lot of work. Um, and so uh, I think it's important to just think about your life and think about your possibilities and take advantage of the miracle that you are a conscious being with the capability of abstraction and, uh, you know, run with that. When you look at how the ancient systems of education, before there were any schools or public schools or any, you know, like mass education, you basically had tutors where the how people were taught. And you look at how people learned, it's called trivium in the West. You had uh, logic, uh, geometry, and uh, rhetoric. Those are the three topics. You weren't taught content. You weren't, you weren't taught history. You weren't taught you know, anything like that. You were taught how to communicate, how to understand language. You were taught how to think with you know, logic or geometry. And then you were taught how to communicate with others and how to know how other people communicate with you, right? There's no content in that. It's all how to think. So learning how to think, learning how to take a view of your own life is extremely important. What content you then decide to pursue with that, that's up to you. You know, like, who's Socrates would say, follow your diamond. Like, do what you think is important. 
but you're better off learning how to distinguish and how to, you know, choose and how to recognize what's important for you and then go pursue stuff versus, you know, because reality, you know, our society is going to pull you in a thousand different directions to, you know, essentially try to take your money and your attention more than anything. And man, you can do better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if people want to see you post places, where can they do that at? Uh, cryptidendeavors.com. That's C-R-Y-P-T-I-D endeavors, E-N-D-E-A-V-O-R-S.com. It's a WordPress site. Uh, pretty basic. I'm just wrapping up my first article, interview with Bill Rogers. Uh, so if you, that sounds like something you'd be interested in, stop in there. Uh, also on uh, Instagram now as Cryptid Endeavors. Uh, if you're expecting content every day, you'll be sorely disappointed. But every now and then I'll pop some stuff over at both of those. And uh, hopefully if you enjoy this kind of stuff, you'll enjoy the stuff that's out there as well. Yeah. And every once in a while, you'll be able to take a class from you uh, with Citizens Defense Research. So if you're listening Absolutely. and want to co- come train with Kirk, uh, we've got uh, one in October way down in South Texas. Uh, should be pretty cool. But man, I appreciate the hell out of you. Um, you have been an amazingly positive influence on my life. Uh, one of my very best friends. And uh, thanks so much for taking time out of your day. Uh, really means a lot to me. It's all mutual, John. Appreciate it very much. And, uh, you know, hope some people got something to have. This is the least you'd episode ever. Hey, drive on. Yeah. Hey, no worries. All right. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later, man. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right. Hey, guys, make sure you check out our website, ballisticradio.com, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash radio. And, hey, if you think we've earned it, please keep leaving those five-star reviews on iTunes. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe. See you next week. Don't